our scripture for today is about Barabbas, this week's character who was near the cross. It's from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. At this point, Jesus has been arrested in the middle of the night. He was dragged before the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And now, just after sunrise, he's brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, because only Pilate has the authority to sentence Jesus to death. So Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things, and so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have, to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Amen. Thanks be to God. This is his holy word. The inmates made jokes about the chair, the way people always make jokes about the things that frighten them. They called it Old Sparky or the Big Juicy. They made cracks about the power bill and how the warden would use it to cook his Thanksgiving dinner. For the ones who actually had to sit down in that chair, the humor went out of the situation in a hurry. The truth of what was happening to them finally hit it when their ankles were being clamped to the stout oak of old Sparky's legs. That's how Stephen King begins his novel, The Green Mile. It's a story that gives us a glimpse into what it might have felt like to be on death row during the Great Depression of the 1930s. And surprisingly, the novel is filled with Christian symbolism as the black man who was sentenced to death is very much a Christ figure who sacrificially takes away the sins and the sickness of those around him and who trans transforms evil into wholeness and healing. It was made into a pretty good movie starring Tom Hanks, who plays the head guard, who struggles with how to make this death row as humane a place as possible. But even with all his good intentions and his humanity, he cannot soften the reality of what is happening to the men who are in his care. Old Sparky is waiting. There was no humane treatment of the unfortunate men on death row in ancient Palestine. No civil rights, no appeals, no court-appointed lawyers, no justice project, no hope. Historians tell us that the death row prisoners in pilot cells were kept near starvation. I mean, why feed someone who's just going to die anyway? Thrown into dark, dank dungeons, the worst hellhole in Palestine. Chained up, beaten daily by the guards, rats, insects, disease. Perhaps after a few weeks or months trapped in there, you would even welcome death. 
Palestine during the time of Jesus was filled with revolt and unrest, and the Romans ruled without mercy. They were brutal, equal to the Nazis during World War II, who executed whole villages in revenge for attacks from the French underground. In Palestine, there was one group of troublemakers who were called the Sicarii, which means the dagger bearers. They always carried knives beneath their cloaks, and they were ready to use them. They weren't really freedom fighters. They were criminals who robbed outsiders, merchants, travelers, people who were on a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And if they ever caught a Roman soldier or a citizen alone in the streets, it was knives out. They were murderers and renegades. They'd do anything to cause upset and to make the situation worse. They were the terrorists of their day, and Barabbas was one of them. We don't know much about Barabbas, except that he's mentioned in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Luke says he was in prison for the insurrection and murder. John adds that he had taken part in a rebellion. And in Acts, when Peter is preaching in Solomon's portico near the temple courts, he also calls Barabbas a murderer. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know if he was married, single. We don't know how old he was. We don't know what happened to him after this day recorded in Scripture. All we can, be, all we can know about him can be summarized in really four short phrases. Barabbas was guilty. Jesus was innocent. Barabbas lived. Jesus died. So Barabbas is in his cell awaiting execution. There were no electric chairs back then. That would have been too fast for the Romans anyway, too easy. Their executions were well planned. They were a visual object lesson for the rebels or anyone else who defied the law of Rome. Their method of execution was much slower, more diabolical, more vicious. It was pure torture, crucifixion crucifixion, something the Romans invented and refined to prolong the death as long as possible. The hands nailed to the crossbeam, usually right below the wrist bone. The feet laid on top of each other with a spike pounded through both feet. And then the cross hoisted up and dropped into the ground. Beyond the pain of hanging by the nails and the loss of blood, Slowly, the intercostal muscles around the ribcage begin to tear away, and then the only way to breathe is to push up on that spike through the feet, to take a quick breath and then drop down again, over and over and over again until you can't do it anymore, and then you suffocate. That's how you die in crucifixion. This could go on for days, depending on how much the victim wanted to live. And if the Romans needed to speed things up, they would just take a wooden club the size of a baseball bat and just break the victim's legs so that he couldn't push up anymore. Game over. You may remember that that's what happened to the men who were crucified next to Jesus, but they weren't the only ones. The line of crosses outside Jerusalem stretched for over a mile, many of them with rotting bodies still nailed on, food for buzzards. It was horrific. And Barabbas knows this is his fate. His time is near. He's going to get his ticket punched in the most agonizing way possible. I imagine Barabbas still in his cell, kind of unaware of the drama taking place outside. Maybe he's listening through like a narrow slit in a window. And he can hear the crowd noise gathering before Pilate. And, you know, Jesus was arrested in secret. So you have to ask, well, how did all these people come to witness these proceedings so early in the morning? Well, they were gathered by all of Jesus' enemies. These were their cronies, and this was their victory lap. I mean, it was backslaps all around. 
they finally had Jesus where they wanted him. Probably some were the rough companions of Barabbas who knew of the holiday tradition, who knew that Pilate would grant a pardon to one condemned prisoner, sort of like when the President of the United States you know, pardons the Thanksgiving turkey. Pilate magnanimously lets one little fish get away, catch and release to show what a great guy he is. Well, the crowd gets all worked up into a frenzy against Jesus. Those who had sympathy with the Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus continue to kind of incite the crowd against Jesus. What's interesting is when we look at Pilate on Good Friday, what's interesting is that, that Pilate is actually trying to let Jesus go. He doesn't really want to execute Jesus. He th thought he had a solution to the dilemma. He could still be tough on crime, but could look generous and, and magnificent by letting Jesus go free. You know, problem solved. But he finds no reason to execute Jesus. But like all politicians, he's feeling the pressure of the crowd. And if you read this along with the other gospel accounts, you see that Pilate ends up in this shouting match with the crowd. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? No. Then what do you want? Barabbas. And the chant goes up, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now imagine you're Barabbas down in the cell, hearing this commotion outside in the courtyard. I mean, he can't see anything, doesn't really know what's going on, can't quite make out what's being said. And then something hits him in the chest like a sledgehammer. He hears his name, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. They're chanting his name. I mean, shock and wonder. Maybe my friends are storming the palace. Maybe the rebellion has finally come. They're going to set me free. And maybe for the first time in a long time, he feels some hope. But he can't hear Pilate's questions. He only hears the answers from the crowd. He hears his name, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. But then the next words he hears are, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's crushed. All his hope is gone. It's not his friends outside. The crowd is calling for his execution, calling for his death. They are out for blood. He hears the Roman's guards coming down the hall like this is it. His time is up. The clink of the key in the iron lock. Blinding light fills his dark chamber. Rough hands grab him up and hoist him to his feet. He can barely stand. They drag him through the hall out into the bright morning sunshine. There's Barabbas shaking in fear squinting in the sunlight, waiting for the hammer and nails to appear, the wooden crossbeam, and then the guards let go. And there's confusion all around, and there's a hundred hands are grabbing him. Is this just a mob vengeance? Are they just going to skip the, execution, uh, the crucifixion and just tear him from limb from limb? But before he knows what's going on, he sees familiar faces. He hears familiar voices. Someone's kissing him on the cheek, shouting that he's free. And then they're hustling him away before Pilate could change his mind. There is no record of him turning to Jesus to say thank you. No historical insights as to whether or not he went back to being a thug or if his life was changed, but you can't help wonder if he ever really thought about what happened to him that day. At some point did he ask, you know, what Jesus, the Nazarene, instead of me, were total opposites. He was that preacher, the one who said he was the Prince of Peace, and I'm a low-life terrorist. I'm just a thug. Why me? I mean, I'm sure he knew he didn't deserve to be set free. He was guilty according to Roman law. I'm sure he knew it. He did nothing to deserve gaining his freedom. It was an experience of grace. And here's the most important thing. Barabbas was the very first person to be graced by the death of Jesus Christ.
Barabbas deserved death. He was guilty, no doubt about it. And Jesus took his place. Jesus took the punishment he deserved. For a dirty, rotten scoundrel like Barabbas, Christ died. And this was part of Jesus' plan from the beginning. Back in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus quotes from Isaiah 58, defines his mission this way. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim what? Freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. As far as we know in the Gospels, Barabbas is the only prisoner that ever comes in contact with Jesus besides the two thieves who were crucified next to him. He is the literal and physical fulfillment of what Jesus said he was going to do. He set Barabbas free, but at a very high cost, his own life. Know this, it wasn't the people who set Barabbas free. It wasn't Pilate who set Barabbas free. It was the love of God in Christ that set Barabbas free. Christ took his place. Jesus knew that the Father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. In a very real sense, Barabbas is you, it's me, it's us, walking free because Jesus took our place on the cross, took our place, what we call substitutionary atonement. Atonement, that's a mouthful. What does that word mean? Well, you can break it down this way, at one-ment. At one-ment, substitutionary at one-ment. The reason why we can be one with God is because Jesus was our substitute. He took our place, bore our sin as only he could as the sinless son of God. This is the great exchange captured so eloquently in one great Bible verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or put more simply in the message version, God put the wrong on Jesus who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. Barabbas is me, he's you. In the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux penned the words to the great hymn, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. The second verse goes like this. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with favor and grant to me thy grace. Mine was the transgression. I deserve the guilt and the shame, but Jesus takes my place, takes it all away. The beauty of the gospel story shines from this story about Barabbas. Jesus the innocent takes the place of the guilty. A sinner goes free, an innocent man dies. In God's great wisdom, what should have been a catastrophe, the death of God's son, provides salvation for the world. He was bruised for us, wounded for us, beaten, betrayed, mocked, scourged, crowned with thorns, crucified, all for us. Our sins drove Jesus to the cross, but he did not go unwillingly. And if our sins drove him there, it was his love for us that kept him there. Jesus went to the cross willingly, and you are the reason for that journey. You are the reason for that sacrifice. We don't know the long-term impact on Barabbas' life. But in his heart, Jesus said, I love this bad man. Even if he never turns to me, I love him. We don't know his response to Jesus. But what is more important is your response. Your response to this substitutionary love of Jesus. Because there's only one, there's only one who could take your place, and that was him. Yes, he said, yes, free Barabbas, take me instead. And you could put your name in there too. 
free Cindy, free Stephen. I will take his place, her place. We can't shake off our own chains. There's only one who can do it. And Jesus says, give me your sin. Give me your sin and I will give you the Father's grace. What has been your response to Jesus thus far? A passive indifference, a minimal thank you, or a wholehearted commitment to the one who gave everything for you so that you could be set free, so that you could know God's grace, so that you could be at one with the Lord, a deep, deep gratitude to the one who set you free. Christ sets us free from sin. But there are other ways in which Christ can also set us free. Some people are trapped in dark dungeons, imprisoned by an addiction to alcohol, opioids, pornography, or so many other things. That's a kind of dungeon where Christ can set people free. But there are other kind of dungeons too, places where something else is controlling you, where something else has you imprisoned or chained or all locked up. And one in particular comes to mind to me today, and that's fear. Fear can be such a prison. And haven't we seen fear spread like a grass fire just over the last two weeks? People practically in panic mode. And I think one of the big reasons people are giving into fear is that this particular crisis with the COVID-19 virus is that we really want to have a sense of control over our lives, and the threat of this virus has shattered that safe feeling. We don't feel in control. We don't even know what it is we're supposed to fight against. It's not an enemy we can see. The invisible nature of the disease heightens the fear, and so when people lose that sense of control over the larger parts of life, they start doing crazy things to try to give themselves a, a greater sense of control over smaller things like hoarding toilet paper, like buying up all the bottled water or hand sanitizer. It's a way to try to control the world. Pastor Mitch Kim puts it this way. We are used to having our lives under control in North America, but a small bug is humbling the world's most powerful nations. People are scared. Hand sanitizer can't be found. Toilet paper, cleaning supplies are being rationed. It's easy to seek an illusion of control by searching incessantly for more information on the Internet. COVID-19 has exposed our illusions of control, and the loss of control sparks fear. As our illusion of control is exposed, then we need to walk in faith-filled surrender before the one who is in control. We need to see Jesus setting us free from the dungeon of fear, walking out into the light of his goodness so that we can be ready to serve him, ready to serve our neighbors during this time of crisis. Let's be people who follow Jesus, but who look for opportunities over the next few weeks to offer practical help to those who maybe are gripped by fear. Look for ways to point people in the direction of our sovereign God. Simple acts of caring will have great power to show the love of Christ. Because God's not surprised by this outbreak. I don't think it was any accident that God led us to have a two-month sermon series about faith in the age of anxiety back in January and February before anyone had even heard of the coronavirus. Maybe God was preparing us to be able to stand tall and to trust him and also to care for others at this critical moment, to share our stash of toilet paper or hand sanitizers or whatever it is you think is going to keep you safe. Don't be imprisoned by fear. Jesus died to set you free from whatever holds you captive. So trust God and wash your hands. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this so vivid example of what happened on the cross the one who deserved death goes free, and the one who doesn't deserve it dies. 
Lord, we thank you that this is such a picture of what you've done for us. What you did for Barabbas, you're doing for us. You died to set us free from sin. Help our response to be one of wholehearted, deep, deep gratitude. And then a commitment to serve you in this world without fear, to walk out of that dungeon of fear into your light, and to trust in your sovereign care and your mercy over each one of us. Lord, we do pray for our community. Pray that we can be salt and light and, and people of hope who can help others during this time of stress and strain. Help us, Lord, to connect with people, to be intentional about not just uh, taking care of ourselves, but to care about our neighbors and the elderly and, and other people in our communities, Lord. Help us to be people in all churches, to be people who could stand up and do positive things to bring the light of your hope into a world that can often be filled with fear. Set people free. Thank you, Lord. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the conclusion of this morning's worship service. We want you to stay in touch via our social media or through our emails or on our website for further information about upcoming things for this coming week and what we're going to do by next Sunday. We'll be sure and give you plenty of information about that. Mainly, we hope everyone stays safe, and uh, we do encourage you to care for the people around you. God bless you. Have a great week.